Okay. Parshat Vayera. I love this parsha. I really love this parsha. Um, there's so many different topics in this parsha. I promise you, I could give a shear every night for a month on this parsha. But I'm going to talk to you about one specific idea because, because I think this gets overlooked. And I think it's a really critical idea. And I think it can change your life. I had a, a commander when I was in sergeant's course. His name was uh, Sharon Segev. And uh, he was one of those like larger in life characters. He was extremely good looking, dark haired, muscular. He was like one of those guys that should have been on a poster. And he was an excellent commander. And we quickly realized that, you know, he really knew what he was doing. He had been a commander in commander's course already for like three or four different courses. He had experience, he'd spent time in Lebanon, so he really knew what he was doing. In fact, after we finished, you know, and got our sergeant stripes, and of course for me, you know, at that point, I really, my Hebrew, I was really breaking my teeth over my Hebrew. I had only been in basic, basic training, basic infantry, basic tank school, whatever, and now all of a sudden I'm learning how to become a commander, and all of a sudden, like, it's a big liability that you can't speak Hebrew properly. But I think he saw something in me, and he would help me out sometimes, you know. So I kind of took a liking to him. I just thought he was an amazing guy. But I can't say I got close with him. He's a commander in commander's course, right? He was an officer. And um, when I finished commander's course, um, so I got an invitation, what's called a Zimun Yashir, to go to officer's course. Now, a lot of people don't get that. And usually they want you to get some experience. But for whatever the reason, I got this invitation, and I had to struggle with it and decide whether to go. Only a long time later did I discover that he was one of the fellows who had put in the word that he thought I should go to become an officer. Right? And I had in my mind, I wanted to ask him why. Like, I was this, you know, guy with a broken Hebrew, and, you know, I, can't, I had a very tough time in commander's course because I had one really, really close friend in the army, and we were together through basic training, tank training, and everything else. His name was Penny. I think I told you a story about him once. Um, and um, we kept each other sane. Now I was going to commander's course, and he decided, he also got invited, but he decided not to go because he wanted to be done. You know, you do less time if you don't go to commander's course. So I was really pretty bummed that now I was with all these Israelis, nobody else was a chayal bodeh, nobody else spoke English. And I think he could sense that. So it kind of surprised me that he put my name forth to go to officer's course and to go directly. And so I always wanted to ask him. And I figured eventually there'll be some reunion, I'll get to meet him and I'll ask him, what made you decide to send me to officer's course? And um, in between my services, I actually, uh, well, whatever, it's a long story, um, got a message and... um, he had uh, just uh, finished uh, doing a mitvach, a uh, firing range, and he came back to his room. The combats, the operations officer of the battalion was like one of his best friends, and they shared a room together in the army. They were, you know, close in the army. And um, this is an officer. And he was holding his gun, and he was cleaning his gun, and somehow after the firing range, he hadn't checked it properly. And there was a bullet in the chamber. Now, how an officer allows there to be a bullet in the chamber is just beyond my comprehension, but we're human beings. We make mistakes. There's a reason that you follow protocol. He obviously didn't follow it. And without realizing it, he, in cleaning the gun, he pressed the trigger, and he shot his best friend. And uh, they tried to resuscitate him. He was shot in the head, and he was nifter. And uh, we all heard about it. And um, I went to the funeral. And... It was a very difficult funeral. Um, 
but there were three parts about that experience that stay with me. He's buried in uh, Givat Shaul. There's a mitzvah somewhere named after him. <coughs> there are three parts of that experience that really stuck with me. The first is that she, this is like a, I think a Yemenite family. She threw herself on the coffin. You know, just lama, 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 alta zavuti, don't leave me. I never heard that because, you know, I hadn't been to that many funerals before the army and maybe one or two. And in America, I don't know what it's like where you come from, but like the Ashkenazim, you know, we're like stiff upper lip, decorum, you wear a suit, right? The Yemenites, man, let it all hang out, screaming and yelling. <clears throat> and the women have a mourning sign. It sounds something like, Ooh! you ever hear that sound? Like, hey! And it's like this horrible, like, this anguished, guttural cry. <coughs> and it sounds like, you know, it actually sounds like the shofar. It's horrible. And I went to the shiva. I didn't really know them that well, but I just felt the responsibility, you know. I wanted to thank her for son, a commander, such a... And I went to the shiva. And um, I started talking about her son. And in the middle of talking about her son, like I told him like one moment that, that he had really done something for me, which was really little, but it meant a lot to me because I was kind of lonely and I was this chayal bodeh, this lone soldier. And she started laughing because it was like a bit of a funny story. And it took about 10, 20 seconds and I felt so good. I made this woman laugh at the shiva of her son. You know, not like a guttural, like just she was just laughing. And the laugh turned into a cry. And I realized that the laughing and the crying sound was almost the same. You ever hear that or see that in a movie? Like laughter and crying, they're very similar. And this is, by the way, the call of our shofar. We learned the sounds of the shofar from Sisera's mother, who was waiting for her son to come home from the battle and gradually begins to realize he's not coming home. Seeing the defeated soldiers, understanding they've been vanquished, understanding their loss, <coughs> understanding he was the commander, understanding if anybody isn't coming home, he's not coming home. And, and, and the, 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 the staccato cry, the slow wail, the anguished sobbing, those are the sounds of our shofar. Where's laughter? Where's laughter? How does laughter become crying? How does crying become laughing? Why are they the same? About 10 years after this, okay? So you're talking about now, I'm at Israelite. It was the first or second year I was here, maybe it was 12 years. And I uh, got invited to a bar mitzvah down at the Kotel. And it was a Thursday morning. And you know, it was a proper Ashkenaz bar mitzvah. You know, they do things a certain way. But one of the nice things about doing bar mitzvah at the Kotel, at least before Corona, was you're in bar mitzvah land. There's like 20 bar mitzvahs there. And there was like some kind of a Yemenite or Moroccan or something, bar mitzvah, right near us. And the women got up on a bench. They were like, had their heads over the mechitza. It was still a little lower back then. And um, they started doing the same sound. The same exact sound. I can't do it. If anybody can do it, you're welcome to demonstrate. But, and I, I got this chill. Because the last time I had heard that sound was at this funeral. And it took me back. And they, I, I'm like, why are they doing that? And I'm looking at their faces and they're all smiling. It's the same sound. The sob and the laughter is the same sound. What is that? What is laughter? Now, why do I ask this question? Because there's a very strange story that we read about in this week's parsha. 
Okay. Um, it's in Perak Yudchet. Okay. And the Malachim, whoever the Malachim are, by the way, um, a Malach, do you know what a Malach is? Angel. Pardon? Angel. Oh, okay. What's an angel? A cherub. It could be a force of nature. Okay. So Rav Kook suggests, and there are different authorities that talk about this, that uh, a Malach, I think this came up in one of the Thursday night sessions, that a Malach has no choice. A Malach cannot choose to change its mission. And if you tell a Malach he's going to Avram and he's going to tell Avram something, he can't decide he'd rather go to Yitzchak. Like, that's his mission. He has no freedom of choice. And a Malach can only have one mission. That's what the Gemara says. can only have one mission. Right? can't do two missions. That's why, according to Chazal, three Malachim have to come. Right? One has to tell Avram and Sarah they're going to have a son. One has to tell him he's going to destroy his dumb. And one then has to go and save Lot. Three different missions, three different Malachim. So what does that mean, a Malach? So the, the, the church created this energy of like winged figures flying in the air or whatever, celestial beings. And Kabbalah has a lot to say in this, but the best explanation I ever saw that at least I can relate to, I don't consider myself an authority on Malachim, is that a Malach is anything in this world that is fulfilling Ratzon Hashem and has no other choice but to fulfill Ratzon Hashem. It could be a force of nature. The wind is a Malach. The wind is given a mission by Hashem to blow. A wind doesn't wake up and say, you know what, I'm just tired of all this blowing. I'm going to burn something. Wind can't do that. Right? The sea has its mission. And it can't decide to do something else. A bird is a malach. A bird has a purpose. It does what it's meant to do, but it's also a chaya. A human being can be a malach. How could a human being be a malach? If in a particular moment, a human being ends up doing something, that fellow who just happened along and saw me lying in the car and called, whatever, the equivalent of 911, and because of that, the ambulance came, because of that, I went to the hospital, because of that, I'm still sitting here. He was my malach that night. He had no choice. Hashem sent him, right? Hashem said, now why Hashem chose him as the vehicle? Okay, that's, if I ever find out who it is, I'll give him a big hug. But in that moment, Hashem used him as the malach to achieve something. And there are moments in our lives when we malachim. So I don't know if the malach already, or, always knows he's a malach. You don't really know what it is you're doing. I was in a car many years ago. I was in high school. I was all set. I was going to go to yeshiva for the year. I had gotten into Karen B'yavne and Gush. And I was going to go to Karen B'yavne. You know why I was going to go to Karen B'yavne? Two reasons. I had three buddies, two of them I was pretty close with, and they were going there, and we had an awesome time in high school. I figured we'll have an awesome time in Karen B'yavne. I didn't know who the Rebbeim were, who the Rosh Yeshiva were, what Torah they learned, anything about them. There was no websites back then. I just knew that these two guys were going. I figured we'll have a good time. They're my best buddies. We'll go. Second, Karen B'yavne was famous for chocolate bread. They had the best chocolate bread in Israel. Yeah, I've heard about this. You can't beat the chocolate bread, right? So I'm in a car. It's Birkas Achama. And uh, we did an all-night mishmar. Birkas Achama is every 26 years, the sun is in exactly the same place it was in the creation. There's a special bracha you make. So the whole Jewish community of New York was going to Central Park to do Birkas Achama at Nates, like, I don't know, 5 in the morning. And in my masifta, I was in 12th grade, they did an all-night mishmar, and then we're all going to Central Park. It's a big event or whatever. And um, I saw Ravriskin. And Ravriskin said, you know what, I'm going there, I don't care, why don't you come with me? You know, I don't know who put him up to that. I don't know if my mother said he should talk to me. I don't know if he just saw me, whatever. I said, great. So I got with him in the car. 
And he said, so tell me, like, you know, what are you doing next year? What's the plan? I said, well, I got into Gush and I got to Kerbiavne. And I decided I'm going to Kerbiavne. He says, oh, why are you going to Kerbiavne? So I said, well, you know, Danny's going there. Mark's going there. You know, we're good buddies, right? So I'll spare with you. It was a half an hour, maybe 20-minute conversation. But he basically said, no, you should go to Gush. I said, really? He said, yep, you should go to Gush. I said, okay. He was my rabbi. I didn't know anything about these two places. He told me to go to Gush. I said, I'll go to Gush. Now, that completely changed my life. I would never have met Rav Luchensin. I would never have met Rav Amital. I live in the Gush today. Completely changed my life. The Nusach that I daven and, and, and Musaf and Me'ila, etc., that's all from Rav Amital. You all would be having a completely different Rosh Hashanah Kippur experience if I hadn't gone to Gush. Who knows if I even would have remained turned on to learning and would have gone to the arm? Who knows? Whole world changed. I don't know if Rav Riskin had any idea what he just did in that moment. He's a malach. So, they're malachim. One of the missions of these malachim, right? And by the way, you have to be very careful in life because you never know if in a given minute you're about to do something that could change the world. You just never know. Don't underestimate the power of a given moment. Okay. So the malachim come to Avram, one of them, I'm going to come back a year from now, whenever it is, and your wife is going to give birth to a boy. Right? She's behind him at the entrance of the tent, not getting into the, the, the mechanics of what's going on there. He didn't tell her. She just overhears it. Avram and Sarah are old. Right? We'll leave out what Bayim Bayamim, they're, they're in length of days, but that's an important phrase, but not for now. She's so old, right, that she doesn't even have a menstrual cycle anymore. She can't give birth. In fact, the Medrash has a field day. If we're going to do a miracle, let's do a miracle. Don't do a little, do a big miracle. She has no womb, she has no uterus, right? Like, that's what the Medrash says. What does that mean? It means if you're going to do a nace, it, let's make it really impossible. Fatitzchak Sarah Bekirba. So Sarah laughs. Okay. Leymol, I'm so old. I, I've stopped even having my period. And my husband is so old. Like, this is ridiculous. So she laughs. So Hashem, there's something that bothers him about this. So Hashem says, why did Sarah laugh? Why is Sarah laughing and saying, how can I give birth and I'm so old? Now, okay, I mean, what, is there anything Hashem can't do? I'm telling you, I'm coming back in a year and she's going to give birth to a baby boy. Sarah denies this. She says, they didn't laugh. Because she's, I don't know, she's scared. And he says, no, you laughed. Now, who's talking to her? Who's to say, Vayom Elo? Says, no, you laughed. Who says, no, you laughed? Two possibilities. 
Avram or God. Pshat is it's a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Pardon? Pshat is it's Hashem. So let's think about this for a minute. First of all, what's so terrible? Like, why is this such a big deal? Like, if I told a woman, I mean, imagine that, you know, we go to, I don't know, Queen Elizabeth's 100th birthday, and I show up, and I say, you know, I'm a rabbi. She says, oh, wow, you know. And I said, oh, I'm a rabbi from Jerusalem. She says, oh, wow. I said, I'm a rabbi in the old city of Jerusalem. I teach Torah opposite the Temple Mount. She says, oh, my gosh, you must be a Kabbalist, because what does she know? She's the Queen of England, right? And I say, listen, I want to tell you something. I'm coming back here in nine months, you're going to give birth to a baby boy, right? So one of two possibilities. Either she's, right? Like, okay. Right? Yeah, right? Well, if you're going to do a miracle, do it big, right? Oh, you never know what goes on in the palace, but what goes on in the palace stays in the palace. That could also be, but okay, right? But, I mean, it's ridiculous. So you wouldn't get offended if she left. What's the big deal that Sarah left? And Hashem doesn't let it go. He's like, no, 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 you left. It's like, uh, it's, it's like, you know, imagine that uh, Josh Alifas comes to me and he says, you know, I had a piece of pizza and I think somebody took my piece of pizza. And I'd be like, okay, I'm sorry. And he's like, no, 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 somebody took my pizza. Right? I say, okay, you know, that's Lobaseder. You want me to give a schmooze about it? Then he comes to me and says, who took my pizza? And he starts walking around. Did you take my pizza? Did you take? So I'd say, okay, you know, Josh, you need, to, you need to let go of the pizza. You know, we're not three anymore. So that Kosh Baruch was a three-year-old. And what's the other big question here? A Kosh Baruch who says, you laughed. No, I didn't laugh. She's a Nevi'ah. The Gemara says that the level of prophecy of Sarah is greater than Avram's. That's not a politically correct line. The Gemara isn't concerned with political correctness. Feminism didn't exist back then. They didn't even know it would ever be an issue unless you get into that different world of... Women have a higher level of intuition and prophecy. The remnant of prophecy is given to women. It's called women's intuition according to some. So if Avram or Kashbaruch says you laughed, then you laughed. Sarah says, no, I didn't laugh. She says, no, 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 you laughed. Okay. Why is Hashem asking Avram why Sarah left? It's Sakash Baruch He knows why Sarah left because he's God. Or... So how do you understand this story? What's this story doing here? Why would... And by the way, what does it mean? Lot Sachakti ki Because she's yirea. What does that mean? What is yira? Am I know? Hmm? Fear. Okay. What is Yira Chamayim? Fear of heaven, you think? Yeah? I would go with awe. I think Yare is related to the root Ra'a. I don't think Yira Chamayim is actually an ideal. It's something we aspire to. It doesn't make sense to me, and I'd be glad that this is another topic for discussion, but, you know, if you look carefully in the Rambam and the different Makaros, it's not difficult to, to back this up with sources. I'm not sure Hashem wants us to be afraid of Hashem. Hashem wants us to be in awe. Awe is good for me. But what's the real reason why somebody who's a Navi can't be afraid? Because what does it mean to be afraid? We once talked about this. Remember I talked to you about fear 
And what is fear? Do you remember what we said? Nope. This is an opinion. You can debate this, but I actually really believe this. What makes you... I remember we once had a discussion and I said I was, I was afraid of being afraid. You remember that discussion? Right? And there are many experiences that you have in life where you're afraid. So what does it mean to be afraid? When you're facing the unknown, I think. Fear is all about the unknown. Okay? You know? Fear is all about the unknown. Saja leaves the base Medrash. He's walking into the Rover Square. <coughs> And he's got a Gemara, I don't know, he's got a Gemara Sanhedrin under his arm. Got a Gemara Sanhedrin under his arm. And he sees there's a girl in the corner, right? And she's, pardon? Gashmias. No, 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 not a Gemara. That's not Gashmias, right? And he sees, he sees the Rova's Gashmias, but no, no, Chazashel, right? Rova's Stark. And he sees this girl, right? And she's got a Gemara Makos. And he says, whoa, Sanhedrin, Makos. It's pretty simple. Makos all about Bezdin. So... You know, he wants to walk over to her and say, you know, did you check the toast was out on Dafya test? But he's afraid. Why is he afraid? Because he doesn't know. What if she's going to diss him? What if she's going to say, Bavli, we're done with Bavli. You don't have your shalmi? Like, it's embarrassing. So he's afraid. You don't want to get dissed. But, like, I'll go home tonight. I'll get home late. Hopefully my wife will be asleep. I'll wake up in the morning. I'll say, hey, babe, you want to have a cup of coffee? She'll say yes. She'll say, no, I'm not afraid. Because I already know. Or at least I knew yesterday. Hopefully it'll still be two in the morning, right? <laughs> she loves me. She's happy. Things are good. Like, I know. You run up a hill and you're terrified because you don't know. You don't know if you're making a mistake. You don't know how many men are up there. You don't know if your men are going to get killed. You don't know if you're going to get killed. How do you overcome fear? By knowing. If you really put yourself in Hashem's hands and you run up in a different reality, you have no fear. And that's a, it's easy to say here in a basement. It's very hard to do that. In lots of different experiences, right? You're going for a big job interview. Bill Gates heard about your idea and he wants to interview you. And you're really nervous. Because you get one shot to talk to Bill Gates, so you're afraid. Because you don't know what's going to be. But if you knew that Hashem runs the world, then you wouldn't be afraid. You'd just be curious. So if there's anyone in this world who should know, it's a Navi. How could Sarah be Urea? What does that even mean? So what's going on here? What is laughter? By the way, here's an interesting idea. If you go back a parak, right? Why does Avram not freaked out about this? Anybody know? Why is Sarah the one who's like, how could this be? How does Avram know it's coming? Nope. When? Perak Zion, last week, Parashat Lech Lecha. Right? Perak Zion. Vayomer Elohim Avraham, Sarai Ishtachalot, Tikrei Shma, Sarai Kisarashma. Right? Sarai gets renamed Sarah, whatever that's about. Uverachti Otav, Agam Natati, Mena Lecha Ben. I'm going to bless her and she's going to have a son. Uverachtia, and I will bless her, whatever blessing means. We'll get to that. Vaitala goyim alchamimi menayu. Great nations will come from her. Vaipol Avram al panav va Yitzchak. Avram hears Makarz Baruchu that you're going to have a son from Sarah, and he falls on his face and he laughs. Vayomer belibo halaben me'ashanai valet v'im Sarah abat tishim tanashi delay. Is a 90-year-old woman going to give birth? Is a 100-year-old man going to have a son? 
So there's two questions here. First of all, Hashem tells Avram, you're going to have a son. How come Sarah doesn't know about this? Second of all, Avram's reaction is the same as Sarah's. He laughs. In fact, he laughs so hard, he falls on his face. Because this is ridiculous. So how come Sarah seems to be taken to task? Why'd you laugh? And Avram, it's understood that you laugh. Now, we could go Taliban. It's not seemly for women to laugh, but men can do what they want. I don't really think that's the Torah's perspective. So what's this all about? And why does Hashem call the second Av Yitzchak? Right? The continuity of the Jewish people is ensured because of he will laugh. By the way, here's another interesting passage. So Avram has how many sons? Well, okay, at this point, how many sons? Two. There's Yishmael, and now he's going to have Yitzchak. Right? And we all know that Yishmael gets sent away. Why does Yishmael get sent away? Because Sarah has an issue with him. What's Sarah's issue with him? Yishmael, anybody know? Mitzachek et Yitzchak. He's Mitzachek. He's laughing. So everybody's laughing. But there seems to be different types of laughing because Avram laughs, it's great. Sarah laughs, there's a problem. Yishmael laughs, he gets sent away. Yitzchak will laugh and that's the dream of the Jewish people. So what's laughing all about? And how could Sarah deny that she's laughing? So the only way to explain this is that there are obviously two different types of laughter. One of them works and one of them doesn't. And although there are many ways to demonstrate this, I'll give you the simple way to demonstrate this. If you look at Unculus, Unculus was a Tana. He lived in the time of the Mishnah. And he was, uh, he's attributed to be the first person to translate the Torah into language that the people could understand. He's credited with educating the entire Jewish people back to a deeper understanding of Torah. And for a long, long time in Bavel, they would read the Targum, of Unculus alongside the Torah, Libriot, the different Libriot. There are different opinions about how this went. Uh, one possibility is that somebody would say, Bereshit, Barahim, Atashamayim, Vitaharet, and then somebody would say, And the Lord did create the heavens and the earth. Like they would do it verse by verse. Some say they would do it aliyah by aliyah. Some say, like, whatever. And whether or not they did it every week, but that's a whole discussion. So Unculus is not just like, we're not just talking about the stone translation. This is a Tana. This is like, you know, he rubbed elbows with the Yochum and Zakai, right? So what does he say? What is um, laughing? V'nafal Avram alapoi, and Avram fell on his face. V'chadai, and he laughed. The word that he uses for laughter when Avram laughs is chadai, which comes, which is the same word as chedva. What does chedva mean? Gilarina dita ve chedva. Where do we say that? At a wedding. So what's chedva? Chedva is joy. There is a laughter of joy. Right? Pshat. Laughter of joy. Then there's another kind of laughter. And this is the laughter that Sarah experiences. So what does Uncle say about the laughter of Sarah? Right? Sarah V'chaychat Sarah. Okay? Chaychat is a different word from chedva. Right? 
What does chaychet mean? Right? Chaychet is laughter. She laughed. Different kind of laugh. It's not a joyous laugh. What other kind of laugh is there besides a joyous laugh? So listen to this. This is interesting. Let's go to Sefer Shmot. Okay? Beginning of Parshat Bo. You with me so far? Right? Beginning of Parshat Bo. Vahi, sorry, wrong one. Um... Hashem says to Moshe, come to Paro. That's a whole question. Where do you have to come? Why don't you go? But okay. Right? I have hardened Paro's heart. Very difficult question. How could you harden Paro's heart? He loses his freedom of choice. We'll talk about that when we get to Parashat Bo. Why do I do this? Why am I hardening his heart, doing all this work? Right? In order to ensconce my miracles, because I want to do the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim show. And if he lets you go, we don't get to have fun. Okay. Uleman tesaper. bincha uven bincha. And in order that you should tell over in the ears of your children and your children's children, et asher hitalalti b'mitzrayim. Ve'etototai shasantivam. Now what does it mean, all the miracles asher hitalalti b'mitzrayim? So there are actually two possibilities of what this word means. One is, right, olalu kapecha. Okay, that, uh, you know, your hands have done. Right? Olel is to do, is to, to act. All the things that I've done to the Egyptians. Right? Okay. That's a strange, you know, that's a strange reason to do Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Right? Egypt is the greatest <coughs> empire in the world. I'll show them they're nothing next to me. Right? Pretty impressive. Took out the Egyptians. Right? Who today is the mightiest military in the world? And I'm not talking from a spiritual perspective. If you ask the average guy in the street, American Army, U.S. Army, largest army, mightiest army, army, right? They got, you know, so many secret weapons. They got bunker busters, whatever. Hashem comes along and says, big army, watch this. I'm going to have some fun with them so that your children and children will know that I could take out the American Army. So that's ridiculous. Like, Hashem created the American Army. Right? We're all aspects of Hashem. I, I assume you've been in Rabbi Aaron's classes long enough to get this. No, maybe, I don't know. It's like, it's like me doing this. See? See this pinky? Pinky's got nothing on me. I'm going to take this pinky out. Watch this, because I got it. So that doesn't make me strong. That makes me a moron. Like, what is this going on here? So there's another possibility. And this is what Rashi says. He says, Hitalalti sachakti. It's a form of laughter. Right? Ki hitalalta bi. Right? Bilam, and there he comes here from Shmuel, but I'll give you another example. Bilam Hanavi, right, gets angry at his donkey because the donkey is just not doing what he says. Right? So he says, Allah sheri talalta bi, that you were, you were ridiculing me. This is a different kind of laughter. This is a laughter of cynicism. This is a laughter of ridicule. Two types of laughter. If there's a problem with laughter, it's because it's a laughter of cynicism. If there's not a problem with laughter, it's because it's a laughter of joy. Now, Sarah, that's not a laugh, that's a cry. But they're close, right? Sarah says, I didn't laugh. Listen to this. This is unbelievable. You ready? Buckled, you ready? I know you're here. You ready? Okay? This is crazy. Sarah says, I didn't laugh. She's a Navi. If Sarah says I didn't laugh, she didn't laugh. 
That's what Rav Nevinsal says. Nevinsal, Gedolia Dor, Rav of the old city, getting on in years, but you can still see him on occasion walking around with a mission in his face. If Sarah says she didn't laugh, she didn't laugh. Hashem says, no, 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 you laughed. So She had a gem, a, a splinter of cynicism, a moment of doubt. It was so deep inside of her that she didn't even know she had it. You got that? That's big. That's why the Pasuk says, Vatitzchak Sarah Bikirba. She had this internal smidgen of doubt. And it was so deep inside of her, it was so insignificant that she didn't even know she did it. So she said, I didn't laugh. How could I laugh? She says, No, 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 you laughed. You got something inside of you that you need to fix. This story is about a character flaw that is so barely there that most people wouldn't even notice it. But we're about to start the Jewish people. We're about to take the next step in the journey of the religion that will change the world, that will demonstrate that a society can be better. And to build that society, this has to be rooted out. This type of laughter, this type of cynicism, it'll destroy everything. So you've got to get rid of this. I'll give you another example where you see this in the Torah. In Tanakh. Right? It's a great example of what Nevensal gives. Shmuel Anavi is told by a Kaddish Baruch Hu, right? Right? I'm, I'm tired of Shaul. He didn't follow, he didn't destroy a Amalek, whatever. You know, it's the night before Shmuel then goes and talks to Shaul, whatever. He says, there's going to be a new king. And you have to go to the house of Ishai. And you have to... You have to anoint the new king, his son. So Shmuel and Navi goes to the house. He knocks on the door. You can imagine Yishai's surprise. Shmuel and Navi standing there. Right? There's no social media then. According to the Gemara, Yishai is one of four individuals who never did a chait. So he's no slouch either. Right? If you're the father of David, you got things going for you. And uh, Shmuel says, I've come to anoint your son. He's going to be the next king of Israel. And I guess Yishai is like blown away. So he calls his son. Who does he call? Israel. Pardon? Which is named? Eliav. Eliav. Very good. Who said that? Excellent. Eliav. And Eliav comes to the door. What does Shmuel do? What does he do? He takes a horn, a karen. He has some oil in it. In order to anoint a king, right? Why is Mashiach called Mashuach? He's anointed with oil. Because you take a drop of oil and you put it on his forehead and it has to drip down. You know, <coughs> the briskers, they're all into what kind of oil? Does it have to go to tefach? Is there enough oil there? The mystics are like, what's the significance of the oil? Oil is a vehicle for light. It's not the light. You can't burn the candle without the oil, but the oil is not the light. Every Jewish leader, Kohen Gagol, Navi, head of the Sanhedrin, and Melech, has to be anointed with a drop of oil so that he remembers that he's not the light. He's meant to be a vehicle to bring light. Powerful idea. So Shmuel takes the Shemman, the, the Karen, and he wants to anoint Eliav, but the oil won't come out. He pours more oil, it won't come out. He says, this is not the sun. And then they go down the sun until they get to David Melach. Now I want you to understand something. Shmuel Hanavi. If Shmuel Hanavi walked in here and he had to anoint a king and he sees me, I promise you he wouldn't try to anoint me with oil. Promise you. He would know right away, this guy's not David Melach. Eliav must be so amazing that Shmuel Anavi thinks this is the guy. 
This is the king. And yet Hashem says, no, he's not the one. So what's wrong with Eliav? Now there's only one other story of Eliav in Tanakh. Only one. Anybody know what it is? It's David tries to take on Goliath. Exactly. David goes to visit the camp. His father sends him with food. He doesn't go to try to take on Goliath because he doesn't know about Goliath until he gets there. And then while he's talking to his brother Eliav, who's a fierce warrior and all geschmacked and whatever, right? Then Goliath comes out and starts calling out, you know, the Jews, dogs, whatever, and David is like, what's going on? How, can we, how come nobody's doing anything? This, this walking Chil Hashem, why is he breathing? Somebody needs to go down there and shut this guy up. Let's go kill him. And Eliav looks at David Melech and he gets angry. That's the only other story we have of Eliav. Eliav had an anger issue. But it wasn't a serious anger issue because it doesn't create a machloket. And David HaMelech, you know, doesn't feel like he has to go. He just realizes his brother's annoyed with him. Now that's the only other story. He says of Nevenzel, that character flaw prevents Eliav from becoming Melech Yisrael. Do you understand this? We wouldn't be sing- we'd be singing Eliav, Melech Yisrael. It would be a different song. The whole of history would have changed. He would have been Melech Yisrael but for that little character flaw. This story here is designed to tell me that you gotta find it deep inside of you and you gotta root it out before it becomes an issue. Right? By the way, what is tzchok? What is laughter? Why do we laugh? You know why we laugh? Laughter is all about the unexpected. Where do I see this? Anybody know where I see this? Where I see laughter is the unexpected? Every Shabbos, Shira Malot, Veshuv Vashem et Shivat Zion. Here is a song of ascent. There were 15 songs that were sung on the 15 steps that the Kohanim and Levim walked up every day to enter Shar Nikanor, to go into the Azara, to begin the Avodah of the Beis Amitash. And on each of these steps, they sang a di- different one of these Mizmorim. And they jammed it, by the way. They ate these instruments. It was a jam session. And the voices of the Levine were supposed to be amazing. It was an a cappella jam session. And people would come from all over the world to hear them. It must have been an unbelievable a cappella jam session. And one of those songs was this song. B'shuv Hashem at Shivat When Hashem returns the remnant of Tzion. Right? It'll be like a dream. Az then yimaleitz chokpinu. Our mouths will be filled with laughter. You know why our mouths will be filled with laughter? Because it will be so unexpected, it will make us laugh. I remember George Bush, the first George Bush, was the President of the United States. This was like in 1988, 89. He was the the President of the United States and he was at a dinner in Japan. It was like some world dinner in Japan. You can look this stuff on the internet, you can't make this stuff up. And he ate something bad, I don't know, I guess he wasn't into fish, you know, Japan, whatever. And he's sitting on the dais, he's the leader of the free world, right? And he, he threw up, he upchucked. And they caught it on, on film, which back then was a big deal. It wasn't like everybody had a phone puppy, so this stuff went viral on TV, right? Because there was nowhere else for it to go, right? So it was like, wait for the ratings for a week. It was all over the news. You know, Jay Leno, who was this big uh, comedian on The Tonight Show, maybe you heard his name, right? And uh, I, remember, I remember watching, it was like late at night, and he came, they showed on the Israeli news the clip of Jay Leno, because it like became part of the news story. And Jay, I just want to thank uh, President right? Everybody thought it was funny. What was it funny about that? It's the leader of the free world, the public, he's throwing up on the stage in front of everybody. It's funny because it's so unexpected. 
Laughter is about the unexpected. We will arrive at a moment that will be so unexpected it will fill our mouths with laughter. If you would have told a Jew, if you would have told a Jew in 1945, in the shadows of Auschwitz and Treblinka and Dachau, that three years later, we would be dancing in the streets of Tel Aviv declaring a state? If you would have told this to a Jew, he would have said, you're out of your mind. Out of your mind. It, unexpected doesn't do justice to what our generation witnessed just 78 years ago. When I was five years old, my mother, um, uh, my parents, you know, it was 1968. So it was the, it was the summer right after the Six-Day War. Right, because right after the Six Day War it was a war zone. Nobody was going, you know. But the next summer, my parents wanted to get to Israel. My, they wanted to go to the Kotel. They wanted, They had been in Israel. They met in Israel. They lived as a married couple in Israel. They were desperate to get back to Israel. So if you're a rabbi and you're in education, you have no money and you want to get to Israel, how do you get to Israel? You start a group, you tour. So they put together a group, sixty-eight uh, teenagers, whatever it was, going to Israel. And they booked us on a lal. And of course, you know, we went with them, right? Family go to Israel. They're the group leaders. And uh, we get to Rome. And we're supposed to switch flights in Rome to the connecting flight to Tel Aviv. But El Al, you know, back then, is not what El Al was today, or maybe it hasn't changed, I don't know. I guess it depends on your opinion. There was a slight mistake. The connecting flight wasn't three hours later. It was three hours and 24 hours later. It was like the next day. Somebody messed up. Now, if I get to Rome and I got a connecting flight and they tell me it's tomorrow, so the ticket agent will try to get me on a plane. But 68 kids, you're not getting me on a plane. And my, there's no way my mother, who's traveling with 68 68, you know, whatever, uh, teenagers, and her two screaming kids, at that time there were two of us, right? I was five years old, my older brother was six and a half, so she's not splitting up the group. So she says to them, okay, they send her this, uh, they're in Paris, the Gaulle, Echvesnisht airport, and they put them in this lounge. So my mother says, okay, look, this is not my problem, you gotta get us a hotel. They're like, lady, what do you, what do you mean a hotel for 68 people? She looks at them, she says, do you have any idea what 68 screaming teenagers and my two screaming little kids are going to do to your lounge in 27 hours? They gave her a hotel. My mother's very persuasive. She gets to the hotel. Free rooms for everybody, right in Rome. My mother says, okay, you're going to have to get us a tour guide and a bus. They look at her, lady, you just got free hotels. What are you talking about? She looks at them, she goes, do you have any idea what 68 screaming teenagers and my screaming te- two boys will do to your hotel rooms in 20 They gave her a bus. And she gets a tour guide, and I think she got free food. I don't know how she did that. And, you know, we all went on a tour of Rome. I was five years old. One of my earliest memories. And she took us to the Arch of Titus. Titus was the general who finally conquered Jerusalem. He took 10,000 slaves in a victory march all the way back to Rome. They built an arch in his honor. There were Rishonim who said in medieval times it was forbidden for a Jew to walk under that arch because that arch was a symbol of Jewish destruction and Roman victory and anti-Semitism and everything else. That's the famous arch, right? There's a bas relief on that arch of, of, of Roman legionnaires with their victory laurel leaves carrying the menorah. And that's why there are all discussions about what that means. 1968, the summer of 1968, Somebody had scrawled graffiti on the inside of that arch, Am Yisrael Chai. I still remember that. Crazy. Laughter is the unexpected. We are called the children of Yitzchak because we're not stuck in the moment. Yishmael was the Mitzachik. He's about the now. Rashi there says Mitzachik, Tzchok, you know, Arayos, all the physical pleasures of the world. Yitzchak is about the future. 
It's not about now, it's about what will be. It's about changing the future, making a better world. That's who we are. And in order to make a better world, you have to make sure that you're on the right laughter track. That there isn't some character flaw, some, some moment of cynicism, some doubt inside that eats away. That's a challenge. It's a worthwhile challenge, right? And it seems to me that this story, it, it holds up for us both the opportunity and the challenge to decide where we're going to fall on that particular coin. You know? We, we've never been in a situation as a Jewish people in 2,000 plus years where it's so obvious where we're headed. Like, I don't know how they taught this topic in, in 1943 in America, 1946 in America. Like, it's 1940, Jewish people are decimated, six million dead, refugees were destroyed, anti-Semitism is rampant. There's no state of Israel. Toynbee writes about the fossil, you know, we're gone. But now, do I find that inner cynicism? You know, there's students who come here, and I'll finish with this. There's students who come here, and they say, I have lots of questions. And I will not settle for less than something that helps me understand these questions. That's magnificent. If, if you have doubt, and you're determined to figure out what to do, that's magnificent. But sometimes a person, it's not so much the doubt of, I want to understand. It's the doubt of, this can't be right. This is ridiculous. Prove it to me. Right? The only one who loses out from that is, is, is us. Right? So that's every person's challenge. How to transform cynicism into questioning. How to choose the type of laughter that enriches your life. Avram's laughter is a laughter of joy because all of a sudden, it all has meaning. And isn't it amazing? Avram falls on his face. That phrase in the Torah symbolizes the fact that I am nothing and I'm in awe of the greatness of Hashem. If Hashem can give a hundred-year-old, if, if I really understand how great Hashem is, then of course Hashem can give a hundred-year-old a child. Hashem could decide that I'll clap my hands and babies will be born. Could be. If that's what Hashem wants to do. And if you're a Navi and you believe and Hashem has told you that, then of course that's what's going to be. So why does Avram laugh? He laughs because of the gift of the unexpected. Because of, 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 of tapping into pure purpose. That's what joy is. And that contrast, that, that, that gauntlet that Hashem throws down to Sarah, you can root this out if you really want to. That's actually what makes Sarah's great. That's what makes her great, to be able to recognize that I have something I need to work on and to figure out a way to root it out so that it never brings me down. So that's a little bit of food for thought on Parshat Vayera.